Thank you, Andrew. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus, who makes your will known to us, but he also just reveals your heart to us. And we ask that this morning we would hear you speak to us, that we would see your will, your way, and that your spirit would enable us to live in it so that we would experience, experience the, the life and flourishing you want for us, so that you'd receive the glory, and so that we would live with the joy you want for us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so this morning, we are carrying on in the Gospel of Matthew, and for the past few weeks, really since January, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is one of Jesus' key teachings. It's where Jesus outlines the, this new way of being human that is rooted in Jesus. It's a way that is only possible by coming into contact with him. And what we're looking at today is only the first in six examples of Jesus saying this kind of phrase. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And it's connected to what we looked at last week, where Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill it. Now Jesus is going to flesh out what he means by that. And so Jesus forbids us from carrying anger. His disciples aren't to be angry people because in our anger, we often strip people of their worth through our words, attitudes, and actions. Instead, Jesus calls his people to zealously pursue reconciliation with those we've hurt. Now, the best way to make sense of this is to look at what Jesus says in its order. So what Jesus will do is first highlight the old commandment, then he'll explain its true intent, and then third, he applies it, uh, it with practical pictures of its outworking. So let's look at this first one, the old commandment. Verse 21, Andrew just read it. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who commits murders will be subject to judgment. When Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's talking about what God said to Israel when he made a covenant with them. The Mosaic covenant is what it gets called. And Jesus is referencing the Old Testament, specifically the sixth command of the Ten Commandments. You can read this in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But then Jesus says that anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And this isn't a specific uh, passage, but a common understanding based on a number of passages in the Old Testament, the clearest of which would be from Numbers 35. And it said that the penalty of murder was death. Now, the motivating factor behind why the, God would give us this command not to murder, like some of us are like, well, that's pretty intuitive. Murder is not a good thing. And of course, you're right. But there's a deeper reasoning for it. And scripture outlines that this reason is that humanity, every human being, is made in the image of God. It has to do with our essential worth and dignity. Human beings have worth and dignity that must be respected, cherished, and loved. And it comes as a result of us being made in God's image. Humanity is unique in this way. No other created thing is made in God's image. God created humanity to be like him, to represent him to our world. And this idea of human value coming from being made in God's image 
precedes the covenant that God made with Israel. That goes all the way back to Genesis. If you read in Genesis 9, God prohibits murder because, quote, in the image of God, God has made humanity. So there's that tie. We don't murder because each human being is made in God's image. Every human being is created in God's image, worthy of respect and dignity. They have value, and their worth has nothing to do with their economic or social status. It has nothing to do with their religious beliefs or political beliefs. It has everything to do with what God declares about human beings. I made them in my image. They have worth. They have value. So if God made human beings to be like him and represent him to our world, then murder is this violent act that not only diminishes but rejects God's purpose for that person and for the perpetrator. It's a destruction, the destruction of someone who is meant to present God to the world. This is why God takes this so seriously, and this is why Jesus takes it so seriously. But then Jesus begins to outline the true intent. And you see this in verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What's amazing here is Jesus claims authority just purely on what he says. He doesn't say, God says. He doesn't say, the prophet says. He says, but I say to you. And he doesn't even feel the need to justify it. He says, I say to you. In the Greek, the I is emphatic. He cites the word of God in the Old Testament, and now he says, but I say to you. And again, he doesn't try to justify it, argue it, or give us a reason. He doesn't think it's necessary. Sufficient are his words. I say to you. And through his words, he's not canceling or correcting what God has previously said. Jesus isn't interested in going against forbidding killing. Instead, he wants to go deeper to an honoring and cherishing and loving of others. He is bringing about this divine revolution of the heart, an internal transformation that happens within us so that the, the way you relate to God, others, yourself, is always going to be rightly related. There's this integrity between what's going on within you and what goes on outside of you, how you relate to others. And this is what Jesus has been describing on the Sermon on the Mount. And it started with Jesus right before the Sermon on the Mount saying in Matthew 4, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And you want to know what repentance looks like? Let me tell you. Then he begins the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus painting a picture of what happens when you repent and receive his good news. Of how you live when the king grabs hold of your life. And the picture is not this portrait that you hang up on a wall and you're like, oh, I really like that picture. It looks really beautiful. It is a living, dynamic picture. It's not static. It's something that you live out through your everyday interactions with God and others. And so first, on the Sermon on the Mount, he has described the Beatitudes, the kind of character that his people have because they've come into contact with him. Then he outlines the kind of influence you'll have through this idea of you are salt and light. But now he's describing the way one lives when the king grabs hold of their lives. They don't just think, oh, I got to make sure I don't murder. Takes it deeper to this purpose. John 
The gospel writer John would say that these are the kind of people you become when you're born again. That's the language he would use. Paul would say, these are the kind of people you become when the Holy Spirit moves in and takes over your life. Each of them are talking about the same reality. Each of them is talking about what happens when Jesus, who is alive, begins dynamically working in human lives. This is this kingdom righteousness that is greater than the extra holy, perfect people that Jesus calls the Pharisees and scribes. But I tell you, he says, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus is revealing this deeper meaning of the law because God always meant the law to be holistic. Holistic meaning what goes on within you aligns with what goes on outside of you. It's not just focused on the exterior actions. And he says, my kingdom people are people who are rightly related to me and others. They're not angry people. Really? My people are not angry people. There is a lot you and I could be angry about right now. A lot that we could be angry about. And truth be told, a lot of us are angry about a lot of things. We're angry at politicians. For the power plays that they make to increase their position of strength, their territory, their wealth. We're angry at people on our social media feeds for the things they share, the views that they hold to. We're angry at our coworkers or our boss for failing to do their job to deliver what they promised. We are angry at our parents for their failures, their harshness, their selfishness, the things they said that hurt you and you live with to this day. Some of us are angry at our children's behavior for the pain they've caused us and others through their decisions that you, as a parent, live with daily. Some of you are angry at your spouse for their broken uh, promises, their emotional absence, their physical absence. Maybe you're angry at someone you trusted, you believed in, and they betrayed your trust. There are a lot of reasons why we might be angry. So what do we do with these emotions? these experiences that we carry? Well, first, we need to understand that Jesus does not forbid feeling anger. So if you felt anger, you're not, <laughs> you're not in trouble. In Matthew 18, Jesus acknowledges that sin does anger and should be confronted, but there's a process for it. And he lays out that process of how you confront someone who's wronged you. Anger happens. There is a lot in our world that causes anger. But everything will depend on how you and I decide to respond to it when we experience anger. Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. He's very specific there. He acknowledges that you're going to experience anger. But one, do not sin. It doesn't give you license to sin, to harm others. He also says, though, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You don't just stew in it. You don't just live in it. Anger tells you something is wrong in our world, in a relationship. It is an important barometer for us. It tells you that something needs to be done, but you cannot act out of your anger. Secondly, we need to see that Jesus is forbidding 
a deeply settled anger that slowly oozes out seeking to hurt others. This is what I think Jesus is talking about here when he says, do not be angry. It's this deeply settled anger that slowly oozes out. And this is where knowledge of the Greek is so important because the word that Jesus uses for angry is this word orgizomenos. It's a present tense participle, meaning it's not a single point of anger, a single moment of anger. Instead, Jesus is talking about something that is ongoing, continuing, a portable kind of anger. He's talking here about the anger you carry, the anger that remains with you. Or put another way, he's talking about stewing in anger, nursing a grudge. That's what he's talking about here. And you know what word I think captures this quite well for us in English? Contempt. Contempt. It's the feeling that a person uh, is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving of scorn. Anger, when you've stewed and it's settled in you and it oozes out, it comes out as contempt. You will treat someone like they are beneath consideration, like they are worthless, like they are deserving of scorn. And this is the kind of anger in our lives where we will often minimize. We'll actually be okay with it. And we come out, we come out and we'll say certain things like, I'm just irritable. I'm not a morning person. I'm grumpy. I'm testy. I'm short-tempered when I'm tired or when I'm hungry or when I'm stressed. As if those are reasons why it's okay for us to treat people as if they are beneath consideration, as if they're worthless or deserving of scorn. See, our actions actually communicate more. And the thing is, anger doesn't have to be explosive to be harmful. It doesn't have to be explosive. Some of us are actually so good at concealing our anger so that only those who are closest to us feel it. We're really good at it. Some of us are just, you could say, really good actors in this way. We're good at expressing contempt through sarcasm. Anyone really good at sarcasm? You express your contempt, your disappointment, your anger through it. Some of us kill with silence. You don't even have to say a word, but your silence communicates the contempt and anger at someone. You can act like that person's not even in the room, and you know what your silence is doing. Others use their anger through and express it through words to remove someone's value and worth. What Jesus is doing is confronting our ongoing anger. He's calling it out. All the anger tied to our bitterness. He opposes the grudges that we have nursed. That anger that we've just sat in, directed at a particular person or situation. He is confronting our decision to be angry people. Why? Because anger is not harmless. Contempt does not lead to righteousness. It wreaks havoc and judgment. See, in our anger, we will strip people of their worth through our words, attitudes, and actions. And the ultimate form of this is murder. The reason Jesus will move from murder to anger isn't to up the ante. I'm making it even harder to follow God. 
thought it was hard before. Now it's really hard. No. Anger is a violation of the law and the original intent of the command not to murder. Jesus is essentially saying, I want you to see my Father's heart has always been for a holistic understanding of being rightly related. It's not simply about what is allowed or legal, but what is righteous. Raka was a term of contempt. It meant you're empty-headed. It was deeply personal, and it was meant to cause the person, you call that shame. You wanted them to feel ashamed if you would use this word. Similarly, you fool was highly insulting. It had moral connotations. Fools knew God but refused to live as if he did. You were saying you constantly do idiotic things. And in the ancient Near East, names were significant. In some cultures, they still are. They have this deep meaning. They, they describe something about who you are. And you can see that throughout the scriptures. They said something about your identity. Jesus' name means God will save. Daniel's name meant God is my judge. Raphael means God, means God heals. Name-calling strips away who they are and makes them something they are not. And it's been done to you and I in our lives. We all have moments where we know someone called us a name that was deeply hurtful. They didn't call us by the name we were given. They called us something else, and it marked us. I remember playing basketball in, in high school, and there was this guy that was a little bit younger than me, and I was getting a little bit cocky playing because I'm overly competitive. And... Um, and we're not, we're not very wise when we were teenagers, so I called this guy a name, uh, an offensive name. Um, and he took it really personally. He wanted to actually try to uh, fight me. And the reason for it was because I had diminished his worth. He took it seriously, what I was saying, what I was calling him. See, when someone calls you a name, whether as a student in school or at home with your parents or a family member or on the streets with a neighbor, they are refusing to recognize your value, your worth, your identity. And that's what I did with that guy. And years later, I realized how wrong I was. And I had the chance. I saw him. I was going to the bank. And back when we used to actually do, like, in-person banking, you know. And I went up to him. And I, and, I, you know, and I told him, listen, I was wrong for what I called you. And I apologized to him. And he was one, blown away that I would remember. But I think he was just surprised that I would actually own it. And it happened because as I started to walk with Jesus, I started to become aware of how many people I had wronged in my anger, how many people I had hurt through my words. And it didn't feel right anymore. It didn't matter that I didn't necessarily interact with them all the time. Something started to change. That's what Jesus does. He says, my people change. It's a work he does, and we feel uncomfortable with those relationships that aren't, where we're not rightly related to them. See, Jesus wants his people to see that not murdering is not the true sign that you're aligned with God's will, nature, or his kingdom. Your words, your attitudes, your actions are all as important as abstaining from murder. So what then? Well, Jesus begins to outline what he calls his people to do because he knows that this is difficult for us. There is a reason he calls you to repent. It's because you've been living in another way. Now he says, turn from that and live in the way that you were created and are being redeemed to do. 
He knows that your anger has damaged relationships, that it's wreaked havoc and judgment. And when you come into contact with Jesus, you're going to want to reconcile with people. You don't enjoy living with unresolved conflict. It bothers you. It bothers you. Jesus says, though, the antidote to contempt is reconciliation. That's what these two examples that he will list highlight. That the antidote to contempt, to conflict, to anger is reconciliation. And he offers these two practical real-life examples of how that gets lived out. One is in the context of worship to God and with his people. The second one goes beyond that to our broader world. In both con- uh, situations, Jesus is calling his people to pursue reconciliation. The first example, we see that worship and reconciliation are actually intimately connected. They're intimately connected. Jesus says, brother or sister. When Jesus uses these terms and he's teaching, he's referring to disciples. He says, if you're about to worship God and you realize or remember that there's someone you've offended, grieved, or hurt, stop. Stop what you're about to do and go and pursue reconciliation with them. Don't come here to worship or privately in your morning for devotions or whatever if you've realized that you have actually wronged someone. Run and go reconcile with them. Don't come back until you've reconciled. This is pretty staggering. Think about what this is what Jesus is saying. He is tying your worship and devotion to God, to the relationships you have with other people. And he says, if you've offended them, if you're not on good terms and you're coming to worship, stop. Go make things right. Go be rightly related. Some of us have lived as if he doesn't really care about that stuff. He doesn't really care about the broken relationships, the conflicts we have going on with one another. And so we'll come and act as if, That doesn't exist. Like there's this bubble, a bubble between you and God, and he doesn't care about what's going on elsewhere. And that's not how this works. Jesus just outlines it right here. Worship and your relationships are intimately connected. If you want to worship me, you want to sing songs to me, but you've sung a different song with your coworkers, your kids, your spouse, your neighbor, your friends, and we need to work through it. This is how deeply Jesus cares about reconciliation. The second one, the second example Jesus gives us is we see these unresolved conflicts with others. See, unresolved conflicts with others will often lead to destruction. Now, this one might seem a little bit different, maybe like harder to relate to, but what what Jesus is doing here is he's tying this theme of interpersonal conflict together. That's what's happened here anger, conflict that you have that you need to settle. And here, here again is this interpersonal conflict at work. And Jesus talks about being sued by someone and walking towards the courts with them. Now, the courts Jesus are referring to here were probably Gentile courts. The Jewish law didn't have a system for suing. That's something you did in the Gentile courts. So it's interesting that Jesus seems to be saying, hey, whether you are with the people of God or you're with those who actually don't identify with God, you were actually supposed to reconcile with both. 
It matters the way you interact and live with both. And Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. The Greek is literally saying, make friends quickly with your adversary. Make friends quickly with your adversary. Can you hear again how radical this is? How much deeper this is than don't murder? This really is, you've repented. The kingdom of heaven has come near. How do you do that? By pursuing reconciliation at all costs. Reconcile with those who have something against you. Reconcile with those you've grieved. Make friends with your enemy, with the one you've had conflict. Stop what you're doing. Go and run and be reconciled to them. Do what you have to do to be at peace with them. But reconciling is hard. It's not an easy thing. Let's not pretend that it is. Why is it so hard to reconcile? Right, let me give you four reasons. We, we think we're right and they're wrong. Why are we going to reconcile if we're right? We can't get over it, and we refuse to see things through someone else's eyes. Secondly, we like being angry. It feels good to be angry. It feels better to be angry than it does to feel sad. Sad hurts. Anger, man, you can actually hurt someone. Actually, you feel power. Third, we're afraid of what admitting our failure will lead to. We're afraid of those consequences. We fear losing the respect of others, losing a job. We af we're afraid of how someone will look at us. I think this fear here is also connected to shame. We feel ashamed over what we've done. And reconciling will require us admitting we, we were wrong, that we have done damage. And some of us, it's so hard to sit with that, accepting that. Fourth, we haven't seen it modeled for us. We haven't seen it modeled. Maybe no, no one around us really does it, and so it feels like, I don't even know how I would do that. I don't know how I would go and reconcile with this person I've grieved. I'm wronged. I don't know how to do it. I don't even know how to start that conversation. Hey, can we have a conversation? Like, I don't know how I would do it. And so we don't. Jesus knows all of this, and yet he still calls us to pursue reconciliation. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Why is this such a big deal to him? Why does he spend this time outlining this and actually making this the first of six and the longest of the six examples he says of, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Why does he do that? It's because this is exactly what Jesus does for us. This is exactly what he does for us. We were in the wrong. He still came to us. He came for us. He refused to remain angry for us, to us, with us. Sin grieved, but he did not hold a grudge with us whatsoever. He saw what our failures would ultimately lead to, and he took on the consequences for us. Jesus modeled what radical reconciliation looks like. And you know, the earliest Christians, they understood this. Paul who wrote much of the New Testament, he once hated Jesus and his people. He persecuted them. He hunted after them to have them be arrested. He stood as he watched people stone one of Jesus' disciples to death. And then he encountered Jesus himself. 
he encountered what Jesus does to reconcile us to himself. He experienced that. He knew this better than anyone else. And look at what Paul will write. There's like this theme running throughout a number of his letters in the New Testament. He writes letters to Rome, to, to a church in Colossae, to a church in Corinth. To the church in Rome, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. To the church in Colossae, he'll say, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Our rebellion actually made us enemies of God insofar as we lived opposed to his rule. God is right. He knows we are wrong, but God did not treat us like enemies, Paul says. He did not stew. He did not hold that grudge. He doesn't treat us that way. He treats us like people made in his image, people who are broken, sinful, but still redeemable. He didn't abandon us. He does not abandon us. He came running to reconcile us. How? Paul says through the cross through dying for us, in our place, on our behalf, for our sins. On the cross, Jesus puts to death our hostilities between God and others, between God and ourselves. Jesus makes peace, Paul will write in Ephesians 2. He brings wholeness. He brings reconciliation. And so then, Paul will write to the church in Corinth. He says, God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. If Jesus had not come to reconcile us to himself, we would have continued to be dead in our sin, alienated from God, separated from him, enemies of him. Unresolved conflicts with others will often lead to destruction. Jesus did not leave that, that conflict that we had with him or others unresolved. He came to have it be addressed, even though he was not the instigator of it. He was not the cause of it, but he came to be our peace. And the antidote to conflict is reconciliation. So the reason Jesus will call you and I to reconcile with others is because he has reconciled us to God the Father. Before the cross, the hostilities, the conflicts. Before the cross, the hostilities, the conflict defined the relationship. But now, through faith in Jesus, he defines the relationship. Jesus brings together what was previously divided. And so, of course, the ministry or the work that he has for his people is to announce that reconciliation is possible. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. But it is possible with God with us, with ourselves, with the world. He's reconciled you to himself, so go and reconcile with others. And so as you think about your life, and not just this week, but your lifespan, there's probably a lot of people you've hurt, wronged in anger. I cannot be the only one.
It's so easy the way anger will cause us and lead us to do this when we don't resolve it. I literally was feeling this last night before going to bed with my boys. I felt irritated and angry that I felt like all day they weren't listening to me. And I was realizing that because I hadn't, that hadn't been resolved, I was feeling angry with them. And my tone with them was not the gracious tone of a father. Not the way my heavenly father reacts. And it wasn't until I, like, I just clicked, I'm like, the reason I'm being like this is because I haven't forgiven them. And I had to stop and say, guys, I feel upset because of this. I feel upset. I don't like that you guys are doing it, but I'm choosing to forgive you. And I actually need to ask your forgiveness for the way I've been. That is the work of the Spirit of God in our lives because Jesus has come. There are tiny things like that or what we think are tiny, and then there's significant and bigger ones. But he calls us to be people who reconcile. So who do you need to run to be reconciled to? Is there a family member, a sibling, an uncle, an aunt, a coworker, a classmate, or a roommate that you need to be reconciled with? Parents, is there anything that you need to make amends for with your children? Children, is there anything that you need to do to make right with your parents? Husbands, wives, is there anything that you need to own? You need to make things right because maybe you weren't the total cause of it, but you contributed to it, and you need to own your part. Who have you called certain names about, and later maybe they found out about? Who have you mistreated with your attitudes? Who have you hurt through your actions? It doesn't even have to be intentional. Sometimes in our grumpiness or anger, we do things and they're not intentional necessarily, but they still cause harm. Jesus, it's amazing here, Jesus highlights the people that are upset with us. He calls you to be the one who goes to them and reconcile. Make friends quickly with your adversary. So maybe you identified with that fourth reason why we don't reconcile, because you just don't really feel like it's been modeled. Jesus is our model. He gives us the picture of how we reconcile. But how would we practically go about doing this? I want to just offer some things that can be at the beginning of it. And I wouldn't say it's a formula because it's not. But I would say that these are parts of what is required if you're going to experience reconciliation with someone. First, I think confession has to be a part of it. If you've known, you, you know you've wronged them, you've got to go and confess it. Own what you are wrong for. I did this, and I was wrong, and I am sorry. I see how it hurt you. Secondly, I think you need to listen. We need to listen. Listen to what they have to say, how their actions made you feel. Sometimes we try to apologize and say, I was wrong, but we don't want to hear what our actions actually did. And part of the reconciliation process means they actually need to be heard for what we've done. You can't just brush it over and be like, no, oh, I already said sorry. We don't need to talk about it. That's not how this works. The goal is to be rightly related, not just to say I'm sorry. Third, we need to repent. See, confession is like, I was wrong. You're acknowledging that uh, a boundary 
that a relationship has been damaged. But repentance is saying, I'm turning and committing from that way of interacting with you. That is not how I'm going to treat you anymore. And those are different things, but repentance and, con and confession go together. You commit to change. You stop what you did, and you commit to living and relating to them differently. How? Again, through Jesus' example, what he calls us to. But sometimes you don't know what you did. You just sense that something's wrong. So I would just say you just need to reverse listening and confession. Say, hey, look, I sense something is off here, and I don't know exactly what it is. Have I hurt you in some way? Because I'd like to know. And if they feel comfortable and they'll tell you, then you go through that process of confession and repentance. I want to just acknowledge Jesus calls us to be a people who pursue reconciliation zealously, but there are times where it's not always possible right away or on our timing. The timing may not be right. They might not want to talk to you, and you don't have control over that. But your posture is to be one who is ready to reconcile, to attempt to. And if they're not ready, you, you, don't, you just wait. Maybe one day they will be. But you can't control that. You need to respect where they're at. There are also situations where this isn't always possible because of distance, because it's not safe to revisit that relationship. So you can't. But the posture the way that Jesus calls us to live is one where we continuously pursue reconciliation in any offended relationship because that's what Jesus has done with us. I just want to acknowledge that it's not always possible, that it, not all of it is in our control. And so, I don't know where you're at with this, 